Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Romans 13 is the passage we're going to be looking at here this morning as we uh, complete, conclude our sermon series on Christian ethics. It's very interesting to think about the situation in Germany, in Nazi Germany, between um, the 1930s and 1940s in, in particular. It's something I've been kind of reading about a lot lately and something that's um, really struck my attention about that situation is how, how many people in Germany at the time that the Nazis were rising to power simply failed to react to what was going on. The number of people who simply would not speak out, um, even among a lot of Christian pastors, a lot of clergy, and not every Christian pastor supported the Nazis, but a lot of them did. And very few were outspokenly opposed to what was going on. Uh, it came to a head in April 1938 where the head of the, the, the Third Reich church issued an ordinance for all pastors to give a vow to Adolf Hitler. And the vow read like this, I swear to be faithful and obedient to Adolf Hitler. It was longer than that, but that was kind of the central part of that vow. And of course, there were some Christian pastors who objected to that. But it's kind of shocking to me to consider that a lot of Christian pastors who would have been called evangelical pastors took that oath. They said, you know, it's just a mere formality. They said, I'm just tired of fighting. They said, I don't want to lose my job or jeopardize my career. And they took that oath. And the whole situation culminated in, I guess this is just kind of a good picture of, of where this was all going, is that on the top of Wartburg Castle, where Martin Luther, a few centuries earlier, had translated the New Testament into German, on top of that church, there was a swastika. The cross had been removed and a swastika had been placed there in its place. And so there was a Christian pastor named Martin Niemöller who, who wrote this, and this is kind of a famous poem that has kind of gone down in, in history about that situation. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. The reason I'm sharing this situation with you is that it raises this question of when is it right for Christians to disobey their government? When is it right for us to resist what governmental authorities are requiring of, of Christians in particular? And so um, the term that is used for this is called civil disobedience. And that's what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Uh, it is an appropriate way, I think, to conclude our sermon series on Christian ethics because 
many of the topics that we have been considering have naturally led to various acts of civil disobedience. We began the series talking about racism, and we know throughout history that there has been many acts, have been many acts of civil disobedience by Martin Luther King in the 1960s in particular, and Rosa Parks in the 1950s when she refused to give up her bus seat, um, and a number of other protests uh, in that area. Uh, in the area of abortion, there have been a, a number of acts of civil disobedience, particularly by an organization called Operation Rescue in the late 1980s, 1986 to 1994. And these people would block the doors to abortion clinics to keep uh, women from going in and having abortions. And so they were trespassing, and many of them were arrested for trespassing and, and jailed for trespassing. And with regard to the marriage issue in our country, you've all heard, I'm sure, about the individuals who have refused to bake cakes or refused to take photographs at weddings for same-sex couples. And some of them have come under fire by the court system and have lost their battles to uh, exercise that right. And so those have also been seen as a kind of civil disobedience. Uh, and so this is a proper thing for us to do. Let's think as we kind of review everything that we've been doing over the last several weeks in, in Christian ethics, uh, in, in what particular cases might we be called to acts of civil disobedience? Is, is that appropriate? And how might we figure that out? And so that's, that's what we're going to talk, talk about here today. So we have two passages, um, <clears throat> Romans 13 and then we're going to look at Acts chapter 5. And it's very interesting, these two texts, because they, they are in tension with each other. Um, they almost seem like they're contradictory. And so we've got to do some work to try to figure out how to keep these two together. So we're going to begin with Romans 13, and then keep your thumb in Acts 5, and we'll flip back there uh, and read a few verses there. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll start with Romans 13, 1 through 4. And then we'll turn back to Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, has not, he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And then going back to Acts chapter 5. Verses 27 to 32. Acts 5, 27 to 32. This is uh, referring to Peter and the apostles. And it says in verse 27, When they had brought them, Peter and the apostles, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. God, we ask that you would give your Holy Spirit to us now as we seek to obey your word as it is preached now. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Three things we're going to learn from these two texts. Uh, The first point comes from the Romans 13 passage, the second two points from from the Acts 5 passage. Uh, The the first thing is, is this. In most cases, we should obey governmental authorities. In most cases, we should obey governmental authorities. Romans 13.1, flip back there. Really, it's a very remarkable passage um, because as Paul writes this, this command to be subject to the governing authorities, he is talking about a government that was not friendly to Christianity. Um, We look at the early church and we see countless examples of how the government abused and persecuted and harassed the early church. The book of, book of Acts gives us many examples of that in the life of Peter and the apostles and Stephen and Paul. Um, the emperor at the time that this was written in Romans 13 was a man named Nero who was notorious for persecuting and harassing Christians. Uh, we know Jesus himself was sentenced to die by a governmental authority, Pontius Pilate. Uh, So throughout the Bible and the early church and actually throughout history, the government has not always been a good friend of Christianity. And yet here's Paul, well knowing that, very aware of that, and he offers up this command. Let every person be subject to those governing authorities. He doesn't say to the Christian governing authorities. He's not talking about authorities in church, the governing authorities in the lands in which we live. Be subject to them, that is to submit to them, Obey them. And notice that the word is in plural here. It's not the governing authority, but the governing authorities. And so we take from this that it's not just a responsibility to be obedient or subject to the president or the highest authority, but to all governing authorities. The governor of the state, the mayor of your city, the zoning commissioner, um, code enforcement who comes in your neighborhood and gives you directions about how to keep up your home in a respectable way, the Department of Environmental Management, Occupational Safety and Health Administration that imposes upon businesses certain regulations, of course the police, um, traffic laws, These are all expressions of governmental authority, and what Paul is saying is that it's the responsibility of the Christian to be subject, submissive to these authorities. Now, our confession, Westminster Confession, sums this up, makes this very clear. Um, Confession says it is the duty of people to pray for those in authority, to honor them, to pay them taxes or other revenue, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for the sake of conscience. Neither unbelief nor difference in religion makes void the just and legal authority of office holders. 
It doesn't matter if you're not a Christian, that doesn't relieve you from responsibility, and it doesn't matter if you hold to some particular tradition or sect of religion that would make you free of that authority. No, it's a responsibility of everybody. Legal authority and office holders. Nor does that free the people, church authorities included, from their due obedience to them. So this is a command from Scripture and repeated in our tradition, the responsibility to be submissive to government. Now why is this? Why would Paul say this? And he tells us that here in Romans 13. If you look at verse 1, again, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Then he explains why. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So what Paul is saying here is that behind every human law is divine law. We have a Savior, Jesus, who is resurrected from the dead. He reigns over all the universe and over all the earth. He is the sovereign one in control of all things. He's the final authority. And yet what Jesus has done is chosen to govern communities, states, and nations through secular governments. That's the way God has chosen to do it. And in some way, in God's wisdom, it's a good thing. Uh, Look at verse 4. For he, that is rulers, excuse me, for he is God's servant for your good. Secular governments are in place for the benefit of its citizenry and the church included. But the reason why Paul can say this is because this authority of God is behind all human law. Human law does not derive its authority ultimately from the will of the people or the opinions that people have. Ultimately, what gives human law authority is the fact that God's law stands behind it. That's very important that there is something stable and eternal that is rooting the governmental laws that regulate our nations and communities. And this is very commonly understood. Martin Luther King, in his letter from Birmingham Jail, said this, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. That's what makes a law just, is that it's based in God's law. An unjust law, on the other hand, is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. It's contradictory to, contrary to the law of God. Um, There's a guy named William Blackstone who was regarded as the preeminent authority in training lawyers in the 1800s in the United States and England, and he said this, upon two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, And by that he means scripture from previous comments that he's made. Depend all human laws. That is to say, no human law should be permitted to contradict these. So that's the point that Paul is making. And this is a commonly held view about the nature of law. I know there's a lot of questions, a lot of discussion that can surround that. But that's what Paul is saying here. Be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except for God, and those that exist have been instituted by Him. So, by way of application here, 
we as Christians ought to be very grateful for government. <laughs> there, there is, government is given to us in God's grace and mercy for our good. It is a good thing, friends, that if tonight when you go home and your house is broken into and you call the police, that they're going to come. That if tonight when you go home and your house starts to burn down and you call the fire department, they're going to come. I was talking to Josh Hollowell a while ago about my upcoming trip to East Asia, and he was telling me a story of when he was there a few years ago and how in the road there was just this enormous hole that was dug out in a street, and all these cars would be driving down, and they'd realize they're about to get to this hole, and they'd, they'd screech to a halt, and then very slowly they would kind of you know work their way over it, and then off they would go. No pylons around the hole, no notice that this huge divot was in the street. Now, I know we have potholes here in Muncie in Yorktown, but nothing like that. And one of the reasons why is because of government. Government works to try to protect our infrastructure in a way that we as citizens can be freed from harm. That's something for which we should be thankful. As Christians, we should not be rebellious toward government. We should not be troublemakers. We should not be subversives. We should not be agitators. That's the principle that's being laid down here in Romans 13. There are avenues, there are channels available to us to bring about change. You can vote. Voting turnout in Muncie, by the way, earlier this month was less than 9%. Not many people voting. That This is a proper channel to bring about change in our government. Voting. You can run for office. You can volunteer in various ways in our community. You can get involved in your neighborhood association. Mary and I this past year have been involved in the Luddingwood Neighborhood Association as a way of trying to serve in our communities. These are all lawful opportunities for us to bring about change in our communities. So in most cases, we should obey governmental authority. Now, some of you might be thinking, why are you saying most cases, Bob? It doesn't seem like Paul is saying in most cases, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Well, that leads to our second point, because in some cases, we should disobey governmental authorities. Now, how can I say that given what I just read to you. Well, there's a very important principle that we need to keep in mind as we interpret the Bible, and it is this. It is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Whenever we read one passage, we can't take that one passage out of Scripture and interpret it all by itself without allowing the rest of Scripture to inform how we understand that one Scripture. And that's what applies here in Romans 13. We have to look at other texts to help us understand what Paul would mean here. And so we're going to look at Acts 5 now and allow Acts 5 to help us interpret Romans 13. So if you want to turn back to Acts 5, 27 to 32, here's the context. This is Peter and the apostles. They're in Jerusalem. They've been preaching the gospel. They were jailed for that. Back in verse 18, they were arrested and they were put in prison. Uh, miraculously, in verse 19, chapter 5, during the night, an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and brings them out. 
and tells them now to go to the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. And so that's what Peter and the apostles do, having been freed from prison. And so this comes to the attention of the authorities. And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 27, where they are brought back before the council. And notice here that there is a very strongly authoritative charge given. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, verse 28, we charged you strictly not to teach in this name. We gave you an authoritative command. We, the authorities of this land, we told you not to do that, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man, Jesus, his blood upon us. So here's an authoritative command given to Peter and the apostles, and their answer to that authority is no. We're not going to do what you're telling us to do. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, we must obey God rather than you, high priest, rather than you, council, rather than you, governing authority. We have a higher responsibility, and we're not going to do what you're telling us to do. This is an act of civil disobedience, and, and this is probably the passage that's used most often um, to teach on this topic. Now, there are other examples in, in the Bible where we see similar acts. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, you might know the story of the Hebrew midwives who were commanded by the Pharaoh to kill all the newborn uh, males, and they chose not to do that. They refused. And it says in Exodus 1, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So in that passage, you get kind of an affirmation. The reason that they didn't do what Pharaoh told them to do is because they feared God. And that's a good thing, to fear God. In Daniel chapter 3, there's a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, issued an edict that commanded um, everybody to worship an image of him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it. They refused. Daniel chapter 6, similar situation where Darius uh, issues a similar edict where he says that nobody can pray to anybody except for me. And Daniel goes right up into his room before this window in front of the whole city and prays to his God. He refuses to do what the authorities told him to do. And so the bottom line is, is that even though we understand Romans 13 to be telling us that we need to be subject to the governing authorities, there are exceptions to that. That in some cases, it is a right and good thing for us to resist governmental authorities. Now, now that's the principle that I can lay out for you. And, and that's fairly easy to do. And I think it's pretty easy to, to take this from the Scriptures. I mean, I hope there's general agreement on that, given these passages that I'm, that I'm showing you. There are occasions, in some cases, when we should disobey the governmental authorities. As a principle, that's easy. As an application, this is really hard. 
exceedingly difficult to figure out when we're supposed to obey Romans 13 and when we're supposed to obey Acts 5.29. (laughs) That's really hard. That's that's one of the reasons why we need to be in community like this. It's one of the reasons why we got to talk about these things. It's one of the reasons why we have these life groups set up so that when you meet, you talk about the sermon so that together as a community, we can work through these things and benefit from one another and try to figure out what the proper and wise thing is to do. But let me offer here just some guidelines as we seek to understand this. That there are some cases where civil disobedience, I would say, is, is mandatory. That is, that really every Christian ought to disobey the authorities in some cases. And that is, whenever we are commanded to do what God forbids or forbidden to do what God commands... Whenever we are commanded to do what God forbids or forbidden to do what God commands. And so in the passages that I just showed you, we see examples of of both. In Daniel 3, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was a command to them um, to basically worship an idol. They were commanded to do something that God forbade, and so they refused to do that. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel was forbidden to do what God commanded. He was Forbidden from praying, which is something that clearly we are commanded to do in Scripture. So he disobeyed that. So I think that's that's fairly clear. But there are other situations where civil disobedience is, I would say, not mandatory, but permissible. And so this is not something that every Christian ought to feel like he or she is responsible to do. You know, I mentioned Operation Rescue a little while ago. Some Christians felt like that was something that they needed to do. They felt called by God to do that. And and I think there's a legitimate reason for what they did as far as I understand all that happened there. But I would never say that it's the responsibility of every single Christian to be part of Operation Rescue or or to protest abortion clinics. Uh, So we're getting into issues here where civil disobedience here is maybe permissible but, but not commanded. And so there are various criteria that have been developed. So here are some things that we should consider as we think about whether we might be called to civil disobedience. Five things really should have taken place. One, we need to consider about whether the law that's being resisted is truly immoral, it is truly contrary to God's revelation um, in creation and in Scripture uh, as William Blackstone and Martin Luther King were saying earlier. The law resisted must be clearly immoral. So we're not talking about debatable points, but where there's universal agreement about Scripture's teaching on a particular uh, issue. The second thing is that legal means of change should have been exhausted. We should seek to bring about change in every other lawful way that we can. But if those have been exhausted, there's no other option, perhaps civil disobedience is the next step. The act of disobedience must be public, not something done in secret. But the whole idea of civil disobedience is to raise awareness to an unjust law or something that needs to be changed. Uh, There must be some likelihood of success. Uh, There must be some 
uh, probability that what you're doing is actually going to change things, that it's not just some irritant that isn't going to have any lasting consequences. And then the last thing is a willingness to accept the consequences. If you're going to engage in acts of civil disobedience, you might be put in jail, and you better be ready for that. <laughs> and be prepared, perhaps, to not even resist it. So these five criteria uh, are laid out for us, commonly agreed upon by Christian ethicists as at least factors that should be considered before anyone engages in civil disobedience. So I, I want to just share a couple of examples with you now about recent acts of civil disobedience um, for which I'm sure there's going to be a lot of disagreement about what these individuals have done and, and how they've done it. But these happened just this past summer, and so they're very relevant to our situation, and this will just kind of help us think through this. But one is this guy named Mike Higgins, who is a pastor, PCA pastor in our denomination of South City Church in St. Louis. Actually, he's the pastor of the church where Cody Brobst and Kyle Keating, uh, former, I think they're still members here, but former attenders at least here at New Life. They attend this church. And uh, Mike Higgins and his daughter Michelle participated in protests in St. Louis this past summer. Um, in recognition of the one-year anniversary of the death of, of Michael Brown. And so if you've watched the news, you've seen that in St. Louis and Ferguson in particular, there have been a number of different protests. And uh, Mike and his daughter um, participated in peaceful protests, and they were arrested for blocking an entrance to the Eagleton Federal Building in St. Louis. So they were not handcuffed, but zip-tied and placed in jail, and I think it was just overnight. There's a podcast where Mike and his uh, daughter talk about this that's, that's very interesting. Um, so they were protesting because they thought that uh, many of the demands that were made about how African Americans are treated in St. Louis were not being met, and so uh, they felt like this was an act of civil disobedience that was appropriate. And it was interesting hearing from Mike here as the, he and his daughter and others were being arrested. And he said, a sacred moment, a sacred moment is seeing your baby daughter taken into custody and not wanting to stop it. And Michelle went on to explain the situation. And, and, and here's what I really appreciated about their attitude toward, toward this whole thing, because Michelle acknowledged, she said, you know, I know that uh, it's hard to do the job of uh, a police officer and that police officers themselves have been hurt. She said, I, I, I understand that. And, and so she said this, she, as if she's speaking to a police officer. She said, please do your job. If you do so violently, if you do so brutally, I will demand that you're held accountable. But if I'm doing something that you are ordered to arrest me for, even if I disagree that you should be arresting me, I will not resist this arrest because I want to respect you. Now that strikes me as a very biblical, healthy, respectful way of engaging in civil disobedience. 
No defiance or hatred of the police. She was willing to be arrested and to not resist that because she wanted to offer respect to police officers to do the job that they were called to do, and they were called to arrest people doing what they were doing. So, you know, we can disagree. We can talk for a long time about whether they should have been protesting and, you know, whether those grievances are legitimate. But I just want to say, I mean, they have my respect for their careful and respectful way that they engaged in civil disobedience. Mike Higgins and his daughter, Michelle. The other one is more public and more controversial. This is Kim Davis, county clerk at uh, Rowan, or Rowan County, Kentucky. And you've heard certainly about Kim Davis. She was the county clerk there who was jailed for five days for not issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Um, I just want to share with you something that, that Kim Davis said. She has been freed. Uh, but she said this, I never imagined a day like this would come where I would be asked to violate a central teaching of Scripture and of Jesus himself regarding marriage, to issue a marriage license which conflicts with God's definition of marriage with my name affixed to the certificate would violate my conscience. It's not a light issue for me. It's a heaven or hell decision. For me, it is a decision of obedience. I have no animosity toward anyone or harbor no ill will to me, this has never been a gay or lesbian issue. It's about marriage and God's word. And so she refused to issue those licenses and paid the penalty for it. Now again, I know there's a lot of disagreement. I know some people here are just like, she should have done her job. She was an elected official. She should have done what her responsibilities were. Others will say, well... When she vowed to do her responsibilities, it didn't include issuing same-sex licenses, marriage licenses, and this was an opportunity for her to make a point about something that she felt very strongly about. There's different opinions on this. I, I will just say this. I, I think Kim Davis took a stand that very few are willing to take, and she has my respect as well. But, but here's how this, both of these situations challenge me personally, and, and that's this. When, when it comes down to a choice between my comfort and my social status and cultural acceptability, do I want that more than I want obedience to God? That's a question I'm asking myself. Given what we've read in Acts 5.29 and given these recent events, and, and I would encourage you to ask the same question. What is it that you, that you really want more than anything? Are you ready to say, I must obey God rather than men? Are, are you ready to take the consequences for what might happen if you're put in a position where a governmental authority is asking you to do something that you know is an offense to our holy God. Are you going to rationalize that? You're going to come up with a reason why, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a formality. I'm tired of fighting. I don't want to lose my career. We, we, we have to think about these things. I just want us to think about these things.
I'm not saying here from the pulpit that Kim Davis was right or that Mike Higgins was right. What I'm saying is that there are some cases when we are called to disobey governmental authorities. And we need to prayerfully, carefully consider how we might react when those occasions arise. The time to think about it is now, not when the situation is is right upon us. So let's do that. So life groups this week can think through these things and talk about them. Last last point uh, is this. In all cases, we should trust in Jesus' authority. That's very clear. In every single case, without exception, Jesus' authority can be trusted. Why? Because he is the highest of all authorities. And at the end of this passage here that I read in Acts 5, we we see why this is true. Verses 30 to 32, first of all, Jesus is resurrected. You see, right after Peter says, we must obey God rather than men, he goes on to explain why he can say that. It's because the God of fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God raised this man from the dead. The governmental authorities sought to stamp him out, but death could not hold him down. Every other governmental authority, leader, president, dictator, whomever, who was killed, stayed killed. They stayed dead. Jesus Christ is the one exception The government came and put him to death, and he rose from the dead, and in his life he has triumphed over all evil, tyrannical governments in his resurrection from the dead. That's why he has authority that nobody else has. He's also ascended, verse 31. God exalted him then at his right hand as leader. Isn't that interesting? Leader. You don't see that word used often to describe Jesus. He is our leader and savior. He's been exalted, ascended to the right hand of Father. That is the position of preeminent authority. And now Jesus leads forward his kingdom in a way that's very different than the way governmental authorities work. It's not by conquering other nations. It's not through political means. It's through, look what he says in verse 31. This savior gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is the way God's kingdom moves forward. First and foremost, it's when people come to see Jesus as the risen savior, trust him for forgiveness and asking him for the gift of repentance so they can turn from their sin and live for him. That is the central starting point for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And then we also see that the Holy Spirit is given. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So the kingdom of God moves forward. The church does its work not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God who lives in all those who trust in Him. This is something I want to be very clear about as we bring this sermon series to a close. Friends, salvation, acceptance with God, forgiveness of sins, the perfect state of affairs on earth, none of these things is achieved by fighting racism, or saving the unborn, or becoming heterosexual. That's, that's not the, those are not the first foremost things. Making changes in any of those areas won't necessarily save you. 
that the only way for anyone to be saved is to trust this Savior that you've just heard about in Acts chapter 5. This one who died, this one who is resurrected, this one ascended to the Father, and the one who gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And so I hope none of you leave this series thinking, well, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to fight racism. I'm going to fight against same-sex marriage. I'm going to fight against abortion. And then maybe God will love me. If that's what you're hearing me say, you're, you're not getting the point, or I have very poorly communicated throughout this series. The only way that you can be accepted by God is trusting this Jesus. And then once you have and the Spirit fills you, then in gratitude to Him for all that He's done for you, you can then move forward and follow the will of God in seeking to correct the injustices that we see in our world. So musicians, you can come forward. I'm just going to close with this story of... uh, Paul Schneider, I've actually mentioned him to you before, and uh, I'm just going to leave you with, with him because he's one of the exceptions in Nazi Germany, one of the pastors who was willing to speak out and oppose what was going on. Um, he was ordered by the Nazi authorities not to preach, <laughs> and he did it anyway. And he ended up going to jail for that, and he was tortured, and he was murdered. He was the first evangelical pastor martyred for his faith. And his last message, incidentally, was a thanksgiving message, the last sermon that he preached. And he dealt with what was going on in in the nation at the time. And I just want to leave you with this as we think of everything we've considered in this ethics series. I, I think this quote from Paul Schneider is good. Today we should be aware of the fact that confessing Jesus will carry a price and that for his sake we will come into much distress and danger, much shame and persecution. Happy is the man who does not turn aside from these consequences. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you please grant us wisdom to know when to obey Romans 13.1, and when to obey Acts 5.29. Help us, God, not to be foolish, but help us also to go wherever you lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.